Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and today our topic is Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick, which the novelist D.H. Lawrence called one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. Everyone knows the story of Captain Ahab and his obsessive pursuit of vengeance against the white whale. And most readers feel that the story has important, if obscure, things to tell us about such topics as America, masculinity, nature, and human fate. If Moby Dick has a claim to be thought of as one of the greatest of American novels, it is certainly one of the weirdest, too, a story told in such an idiosyncratic way as to have had few imitators. Its simple and profound theme of the duel between Ahab and Moby Dick is woven in with marvellous digressions on all sorts of topics, from the Bible to the phrenology of whales. The book is an epic spliced to an encyclopedia. So today we want to ask, how did the story come about? What does it mean? And why is it written in this way? I'm hoping to get some answers to these questions from two of my colleagues from Hong Kong University, Jessica Valdez, Assistant Professor in the School of English, and Kendall Johnson, who teaches American Studies and is head of the School of Modern Languages and Cultures. Kendall, can you start us off by telling us something about Herman Melville, who he was, what he'd done, and what he was doing in 1850 when he starts Moby Dick? Sure. Um, well, in 1850, he has big literary pretensions. He's recently married to a, a very famous, into a very famous family. Uh, his father-in-law is the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And 10 years previously, Herman Melville had set out on a whaling expedition that took him throughout the South Pacific. So in 1850, he's come back. He's got five novels under his belt, and he's looking for the big one. He makes close friendship with Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Moby Dick is something that he's working on in the background. He's basically writing this novel not just based on his experience in the South Pacific, but to make sense in some ways of his own life. His own father had been um, an unsuccessful dry goods importer. Um, his grandfather's... He's a Massachusetts man? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, so he, his, his own parents had basically been from prominent families, one from Boston, uh, one from New York. And his grandfathers had been very prominent in the U.S. Revolutionary War, one a famous major and a general. Okay. So he grows up um, expecting, he's in a, a household of privilege, expecting to continue this reputation. Um, but his father dies, uh, has spent the fortune of the family, and he's left with a mother who's very religious. He's left with an older brother who, like him, struggles to make a living. So in 1840, he goes out on this whaling expedition, comes back. Um, and in 1850, he's basically trying to make good on his, his hopes, his dreams, through a literary, through a literary profession. Okay, that, that's great. Can, can I ask you to uh, elaborate on two things there? First of all, tell us a bit more about his education. And then can you tell us about the fruits of his voyage to the Pacific, which produced a, a couple of books, is that right? Yes. Uh, well, his education is sporadic. So when his father and his, you know, his family is doing well, he's basically sent to the best schools in New York. Mm -hmm. um, but after his father's death, his education sort of flags. We don't really know exactly what he's doing during his late teenage years. Um, we do get a sense that he 
goes to the South Pacific on a whaling vessel called the Akushnet in 1840 to make some money, to get some experience. And he's going as a working sailor. Yeah, working he's, a, whaler. he's very green. So yeah. uh, he's, his share of the profit on this voyage will be 1 to 170 or something like that. And he doesn't make it around on this voyage. He basically jumps ship, um, spends some time in the Marquesas Islands, uh, signs up on another ship, jumps ship again, and eventually makes his way home on a U.S. Navy man of war. Um, so from that experience, he, he writes his first novel called Taipei, which is a real, it's a fascinating novel and makes his name uh, as a promising young novelist. And it's basically about his time in um, the Marquesas Islands. You know. So when, it's, it's interesting, you talk about he, he's assigned a certain percentage of the voyage's profits. And this is in the early chapters of Moby Dick, that they're all signing up. You you get one percent and you get six percent and so on. So that's that's how it worked. That is, and in, in the novel, the the two owners, these Nantucket Quakers, are very hard bargainers. So mm. our poor character Ishmael gets a, a very very small percentage. Okay, so let's start to talk about him. So Jessica, my first question for you is: Tell us the first sentence of Moby Dick. Uh, call me Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Yes. So t- okay, can you tell us something about Ishmael? Is the narrator of the whole story. Tell us about him. Yes, well, Ishmael is is partially based on Melville's own experiences at sea, and mm-hmm. you can see the autobiog- autobiog- autobiographical elements of the beginning of Moby Dick, where Ishmael um, negotiates that very bad share <laughs> um, when he goes on his first um, or his only um, trip. So Ishmael is the narrator of the novel. Um, he's also, in some ways, the central character, arguably. Um, there's really two Ishmaels in some ways. There's Ishmael the character, there's Ishmael the narrator. The narrator's older, retrospective. We know that Ishmael survives right, this, this oh, story and this trip. Given away the ending. <laughs> Given t- away t- the ending. Tell us about Ishmael the character first. Yeah, Ishmael the character. I mean, he's a young man um, going away to sea, in a sense, searching for himself and, and searching for meaning in the world um, and going on this trip. Ishmael is, is, is green, too, very inexperienced, um, and in some ways is easily offended and upset in the early scenes of the mm-hmm. novel, particularly when he has to share a bed with Queequeg um, when he first is in New Bedford. And there's there's no no rooms left, uh, so he has to this share a bed. The, in the very early chapters. Yes, he, very early chapters. decided to go, to, to, to go on a wedding voyage. He has to stay in, in. It's full up. He has to share a, not only a room but a bed. Yes. With? With Queequeg, um, who is a, pol- a Polynesian... Um, harpooner um, and I guess I'll say a little bit more about um, Ishmael uh, so Ishmael, so I've said a little bit about Ishmael as a character, now a little bit about Ishmael as a narrator um, he's he's a very interesting narrator and the, the novel itself is, is interesting in terms of form, right? It's not simply a story that's propelled by plot in fact it's not propelled by plot um, Ishmael often digresses, moves away from the actual plot of, of the story. And but there is a basic story. Yes. Which is the story of the voyage. Yes, the basic story is the story of the voyage um, and Ahab's search um, and desire for vengeance. Um, Ahab, the captain of, yes, the, of the ship. And um, Ishmael, uh, of course, goes on this voyage right, in, in a search for himself. But also the narrator puts together this, tells the story of this voyage interspersed with uh, encyclopedic entries basically on whales, um, 
dialogues, monologues that seem that are Shakespearean in quality. Ahab gives a long monologue um, and long chapters, digressions on what how what is a whale and categories of of, of whales that also sort of jokingly reflect on. Um, uh, publishing at the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, I think for, for readers coming to Moby Dick expecting to perhaps read this, this adventure story of a whale, of this, this voyage to, to um, find Moby Dick and, and seek vengeance on Moby Dick, will be quite confused and kind of confronted with the difficulty of Ishmael as a narrator um, and the digressions that are involved in, in his story. There's really nothing like it. Is there, as, as a mode of storytelling, it's very peculiar. You get this very, very simple story: obsessive sea captain voyage chasing this whale, and eventually at the climax where it, it, it all goes wrong. Um, but these weird and frequent and long interruptions to the narrative, mm. where he's talking about really anything under the sun. <laughs> there's, there's no model for that, is there? Or is there? It's almost as if he's working through his remembrance of the experience and trying to make sense out of things that dazzled him, uh, more than dazzled him, that shocked him. Um, And Ishmael, when he joins, is very pliable, very young, but what he sees around him are men uh, weathered by brutal experiences, modeled uh, by deep intimacies among themselves on the high seas. And he's trying to fit into that, survive it. And when he encounters Ahab... And at the people around him, part of the question is what motivates such vengeance, such vengeance that makes no sense, that seems completely out of joint. Uh, and we follow that voyage then to the end, the ultimate end of, of Ahab's life. And we're left with uh, Ishmael at the very end sort of as the lone survival survivor. Mm. And I think that the attempt to then write this voyage is an attempt to make sense of his own survival mm. and to kind of work through meanings uh, that are both – spiritual, uh, political, uh, literary. Which we will be talking about in a minute, but just a, a little bit more about Ishmael. It, it struck me as I hadn't read the novel for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was surprised to discover actually how funny he is. <laughs> he, he's a very humorous narrator mm-hmm. and a rather gay in, in, the, in the sense of happy and enthusiastic, <laughs> at least at the beginning. Um, Jessica, you mentioned one of the first and most memorable scenes early on, he has to arise in the inn, he has to share a bed with a man he considers a savage. One of the central themes of the book is the friendship between Ishmael and and Queequeg, the harpooner. Could you tell us a little bit more about Queequeg and how Ishmael's friendship develops with him? Because it doesn't start very well, does it? No, not at all, actually. uh, Ishmael is, is... quite anxious about having to share a bed with, with this cannibal, as he calls him, and right? He smokes his pipe in bed and yeah. worships his god. And, and, and Queequeg is out late that night, and it's after midnight when he finally gets in, and Ishmael wants to go to bed, but is anxious about going to bed. And finally he does, and Queequeg comes in, of course doesn't expect anyone to be in his bed, um, and essentially threatens to attack <laughs> Um, Ishmael, as, as anyone would if you find a strange person in your bed. Um, and this, this whole scene is, is, is quite funny. And it, it's, a, it, it's a sort of bedroom farce. Yes, it? it is. I mean, in a way, it makes one think of, I, I think of like Charles Dickens, the Pickwick yeah. Papers, where Mr. Pickwick stumbles into the wrong room um, and frightens a woman. I mean, yeah, this is, this, it's very comic. 
Um, but it turns to be quite a bonding experience for the two of them as when the, when they wake up the next morning, Queequeg is is sort of has flung himself over um, Ishmael and they're in what is basically a matrimonial uh, embrace. Um, and it also softens Ishmael, whereas before he's quite anxious and yeah. easily upset. He, he seems to kind of calm down through his relationship with Queequeg. Which then turns out to be, in, in a sense, one of the value centers of yes, the novel, I, I think. Yes, certainly. Okay, um, Kendall, uh, a bit of literary history here. Because people talk about the American Renaissance mm. and Slot and Moby Dick into it. This is in the, in the, right in the middle of the 19th century. Can you tell us something about the literary context sure. of the novel? Well, the American Renaissance uh, is, is the title of a famous book by a Harvard professor named F.O. Matheson. And he names five great uh, American literature geniuses, right? Okay. Uh, so Emerson, Thoreau, yeah. Elville, Whitman, and Hawthorne. Okay. Right? And they're all um, around at the same time. They're all men. They're all around the same time. He leaves <clears> out a lot of people who are writing you know, these amazing novels like Harriet Beecher Stowe's mm-hmm. Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is contemporaneous with mm-hmm. Moby Dick, much more and much more successful than mm-hmm. Moby Dick. Um, but there's a sense in the 20th century that we need to go back. We American scholars need to go back and define who we are, not just through politics or religion, but through literary production. And Melville is a centerpiece in this. Um, he's one of the more bleak voices in, these, in this collection of, of canonical authors. And today we still read Melville, although the whole question of choosing five or the whole project of choosing five is quite, quite suspicious. Quite, it's actually no one thinks in that way anymore about Does the full range of U.S. Uh, society. Did, did he choose these five men because they were all great or because they had something in common? Well, they did have something in common. They all sort of knew each other and, and uh, tried to develop these friendships, uh, both intellectual and, uh, I guess we could say, everyday human relationships. Um, but and they, I think they are great. I mean, I think that there's nothing to gainsay about you know, challenging the greatness of Melville, but the context often gets left out as you lift him from the 1850s. And I think when we read, 18, we read Melby Dick in context, we, we see is a U.S nation that's deeply divided by slavery, headed towards civil war, in the midst of manifest destiny that's basically removing Native Americans from the West, uh, going to war against Mexico. And these are all thematized in Moby Dick, from the name of the the ship itself called the Pequod, Pequod, which um, is is the name of a a Native people who uh, battled, who had war with the first colonists and the famous Pequot War of 1637. Um, and they were, as if you read the Puritan historians about this, if you read William Bradford, um, he'll talk about the extermination of the Pequot. Now, the Pequot weren't ex- exterminated, but this was the language that Bradford, the Puritan, used, and this is the language of holy war. Melville is revisiting this, reminding this of this when he gives us a ship called the Pequot. And, and also populates it with all sorts of different races and origins and cultures and backgrounds. Yes, definitely. So we have Queequeg, um, this tattooed man, and uh, you know what Jessica said is, I think, very, very very important, the flexibility of Ishmael uh, basically blossoming as he enjoys this relationship with Queequeg. By the end of the the experience, uh, Ishmael himself will tattoo on his arms, on his body, the measurements of the whale, that that, Mm. you know, the whales that are being hunted. So 
be, you know, beyond Queequeg, we have Tashtego, who is another harpooner and is actually a Wampanoag native and reminds us again of not just the Pequot War, but King Philip's War, these early Puritan historians and, and the wars that they... He's a, a Native American. Yes, Tashtego is, right. yes. And then the third is, is Dagu, and Dagu is he's, actually an African. He's an African, and, yeah. uh, You know, Melville's not too careful with, with Dago's uh, geographical <laughs> origin, but yeah. there is this collection, as you said, of mm-hmm. figures from around the world. There's the fourth harpooner, uh, harpooner uh, Fidala, Fadala is a Parsi, right, which is uh, very mysterious figure, but he is Ahab's right-hand harpooner, right? Yeah. So you have these, these whalers who go out with harpooners at their sides, and Ishmael is basically uh, Queequeg's uh, helper, servant in this, in this, on this uh, voyage. So, of course, Melville's not only a part of American literature, yeah. but he's also reading novels... It's the great age of the novel. What else is yeah. important in well, that context? I think one thing to keep in mind, too, is that at this time, Americans were trying to forge an American literary tradition because it was perceived as it was perceived that there wasn't one. And a lot of um, Americans were reading British novels, um, particularly Charles Dickens, right? Um, and Charles Dickens had just actually done a tour of the U.S. a few years before Moby Dick was published um, and was advocating for international copyright law because his works were so widely plagiarized. So in some ways, the American publishing industry was really focused on plagiarisms of so British pi- pirating texts. pirating yes. copies of, of Dickens and other successful novelists from yes. overseas because they're not protected by copyright. Exactly. Um, and, and yet D- Dickens is a, is a celebrity figure, isn't oh, he? He's a celebrity figure, and <clears throat> I think in some ways it helps us to keep in mind this this question of democracy in Moby Dick if we think about Dickens's tour, because Dickens in many ways before he came to America upheld the U.S. as this model in terms of democracy. When he came, he was very disillusioned and actually attacked it in his, in his work American Notes and in Martin Chuzzlewit, and so it was widely unpopular with Americans for a while. Mm, um, and yeah. Moby Dick, too, I think, grapples with these questions of American democracy. Because in some ways, um, it the, the ship and, and this, this widely diverse uh, crew is highly democratic, even more democratic than American society, which was obviously more privileged towards uh, white Americans, but at the same time was focused around this... this um, power resting in Ahab. Right? So you have this monomaniac, yes. charismatic <clears throat> leader, Ahab, who's driving the whole quest, because for him it's a, it's not a commercial voyage, is it? It's a personal, a personal vengeance trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a vendetta. And yeah. you know, that's the one thing that's interesting to, to, to see, it, just like you mentioned, Douglas, this is a commercial voyage. And the two Nantucket Quakers. The Quaker is a very, uh, I guess we could say, unique brand of Protestantism. They think about the voyage in terms of how many barrels of oil can be brought back. And what they like about Ahab is that he's fearless. But what they don't know about him is that his vendetta is so strong, his, his sense of vengeance is so strong that he cares not about commerce. Mm-hmm. And he will do anything, even risk the lives of the entire crew, the entire ship, kill this white whale. Right? So he, he, he lets go by various opportunities 
a profitable business, doesn't he? Because he's focused on this one animal. He does. I mean, there's a there's an anecdote in it that's just heartbreaking. It has not to do. It doesn't have to do with Ahab. It actually has to do with one of the mates named Stubb. And when he goes out after a whale, there is a young um, African American servant with him named Pip. Pip falls in the water, and the first time Stubb gets him back. Right, gives up the chase and gets. The second time Pip falls in the water, Stubb does not go back and get him. He keeps going after this whale. And they go and pick up Pip after he's basically been floating for hours in this ocean with no ship in sight. And when they pick him up, he's gone mad. And he lives for the rest of the voyage basically as this uh, character who has clearly lost his sanity and narrates, commentates on what's happening around him in in a mode of of, uh, comedy that seems uh, beyond rationality. This seems to be Shakespearean. It is. And and I think the heartbreak is, you know, Stubb tells Pip, if you fall in this water again, we won't pick you up. Because realize if you're sold in Alabama, the price that you bring is uh, so small in comparison to the one whale that that if we catch, we can make all of this money on its oil. So you are in relation to that. And, And Melville says at the bottom, Christians, whomever you are, you are money-making animals. Mm. And that seems to be a, a very harsh commentary on what Christian faith is doing for Melville as he theorize, thinks about this novel. We forgot to mention the reason why Ahab is, is chasing the whale mm-hmm. is that they've had previous encounters. Ahab has lost a leg uh, to the whale, and he's just hell-bent, it seems the right word, on taking his revenge. So, okay, let's... We have... It in many respects a very realistic novel masses of detail about what it's like to to be on a ship and and the commercial basis of it and the nature of the whale and so on the meaninglessness of nature seems to be recorded as a hieroglyphic uh, or as a sign in this white whale its relation to to racial whiteness is interesting to think about but the whiteness of that whale seems to be related to racial whiteness but also be beyond it. It seems to be the whiteness of death, of of rotting corpses and bodies. It's really brutal. Part of the tragedy of Ahab is his need to, or his his desire to attribute meaning or reason to that whiteness of the whale. And so this, this whale, which is in some ways an example of the irrational universe, the orderless quality of, of nature, uh, Ahab sees as a mask, as a pasteboard mask, is what he says, that he needs to puncture or break through to find meaning. Yes, mm. he's looking behind it. He also attributes intention to this whale, yes. agency to the whale. He, he, I mean, to, to seek vengeance on someone reco- sort of implies that that person or object has intentionally uh, acted uh, in, in malice. Yeah, and, at, and so he thinks the whale recognizes him. Yes. He knows it's Ahab who's coming after him. Yes, that's what he thinks. And so he, he, he considers the whale vindictive, um, full of malice, and so he needs to seek vengeance on this whale um, in, in a way to assert his own ability to interpret meaning into the universe. And in the end, what's really interesting is that in the end of the novel, the narrator, I mean, Ishmael, the narrator, picks up on this language and the, the whale is described as vindictive in his pursuit of the ship. So there's a way in which this language is picked up by the narrator and not simply uh, isolated with Ahab. So we, have, we end with a 
it's really like an action movie, isn't it? We end with a huge, <laughs> violent climax when Ahab and the whale have their, their final encounter. The ship is sunk. Ahab is lost. Ishmael survives, he survives in the coffin. Explain that. Well, he, at the very end, is basically on Ahab's boat as Ahab has this final confrontation with Moby so Dick. So we just need to explain. So you've got the ship, yes. which everybody So from on. the ship, you have these different the boats that... Get in individual boats that get lowered into the sea to chase the whale. Exactly. So Ahab has pursued the white whale. The Pequot has been destroyed. And in the, in the melee between the whale and Ahab, Ishmael, our character, has fallen off. And he's basically watching all of this happen. He's watching all of his friends die, including... Now, what saves his life as he kind of initially spirals down into the ocean as this as this ship sinks is Queequeg's coffin. And Queequeg, during the voyage, has gotten very ill. And at the point, and everyone thinks he's dead, the carpenter makes him a coffin, which he, which Queequeg then inscribes with the tattoos that are on his body. And it becomes something that, in the final confrontation, is used as a flotation device. And it's what Ishmael saves Ishmael's life. So he pops back up holding it and again trying to make sense of what's happened and gets picked up by a passing ship called the Rachel whose captain is looking for his lost son and uh, simply finds, as Melville says, another orphan. Another orphan. So Ishmael comes back from the dead, really, doesn't he? he he's going to emerge from that coffin. This is a biblical cycle that seems maybe beyond the Bible. Um, the, 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 threes. Everything's coming in. There's three days of a chase, right? Uh And there's moments where you feel as if you're being resurrected or maybe reborn. Ishmael is definitely reborn. But he's not a very reliable narrator, as uh, Jessica said. So what is he reborn into? In some ways, he's reborn into uh, storytelling. Maybe not the most reliable storytelling. Is this a religious novel? A spiritual novel, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's many things. <laughs> it's difficult to pen, pin down the one thing that Moby Dick is. Um, on one level, it is it is a spiritual novel. It's looking for meaning um, or grappling with the lack of meaning behind that, that mask. He encodes in this novel these, these patterns of, of, of faith being tested. The Leviathan is Job. It's, it's Jonah being swallowed by the whale. Mm. And and that's, in some ways, what's magical about this. It's, it's about the betrayal of faith. It's about the betrayal of a political sense of, of, of leadership. It's very hard to unpack or kind of pull all the layers of the, of the book apart, just as it's very uh, valuable to pull apart the pieces of this whale. And the brutality of, of, of killing and pulling pieces of the whale apart is at the root of, of, of what this novel is trying to, to characterize it as violence, like what is violence in our world? And just one more point, it's, it's literal. It's not just symbolic so that at several points, Melville makes the, makes the point that you who are reading my book with lamp oil are benefiting from mm. the carnage of this voyage. Of course. Right? Because this, these whales' oil has given you the ability to see, to read, and try to understand the hieroglyphics yeah, on the page brilliant. before you. But also, also from the oil or from the sperm of the, the murdered whale, right, comes an intense kind of communal bonding on the ship in the middle of the novel um, because they the, the crew have to um, kind of uh, break uh, 
clumps of the sperm into, to make it into liquid. And it's this, this wonderful chapter where all of the crew members are um, trying to break apart these, these, um, these balls of sperm into, into liquid. And in doing so, they kind of lose a sense of their own individual bodies and mingle with each other. So there's this sort of communal value that is counteracted against Ahab's pursuit of the whale. Oh, God, I wish we could go on talking about this for another half hour, but we've unfortunately used up our time. So thank you very much, Jessica Valdez, Kendall Johnson, as ever, and thank you for listening.